I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. And, um, mute everybody. Hold on. Good morning and welcome to our next class on the topic of Tzni'ut, modesty, one one translation of it, but of course many other ways that we can understand that word. Um, Before we start, as you know, this Sunday is the 17th of Tammuz, which begins the three weeks leading up to the 9th of Av, when we had two Bate Mikdashot, Mikdashin destroyed, Mikdashot. I think it's feminine, uh, destroyed because of the sin of sinas chinam, of causeless hatred. And this, the, after Sunday, which is a fast day, it's a minor fast, but many people fast on that day. Um, we begin to lessen our joy as we are heading towards Tisha B'Av. It's a time when there were a tremendous amount of catastrophes and calamities that happened to the Jewish people throughout history. So we basically, it's a time when we, um, when we lessen our joy and we kind of recall all of the different things that the Jewish people went through. And of course, we're working on ourselves to try and rectify whatever mistakes that were made um, along the way. So the first thing I want to do, as we've been doing, is just look at a little bit of the laws of Shmira Salashon, because... Judaism says that if we watch what we say, we can help bring the ge'ula. And of course, Lashon Hara is nothing but sinas chinam in practice. When we speak negatively about other people, we're causing divisiveness between people. And that's not what Hashem wants. So you might be surprised by this law. Um, I think it's a bit counterintuitive. But there's actually a law that says, do not excessively praise a person in front of other people. Has this ever happened to you where you sort of gushed on and on about a friend of yours or somebody who did you a service or somebody who you think is great and and somebody else says to you, her? Oh, I knew her when she was a kid. She was the biggest brat, right? Or that service, I went to that person and they overcharged me and they treated me horribly and I think they're terrible at what they do. So this is what the Torah is teaching us. It's telling us that we even have to be careful when we say nice things about other people, because it's inevitable that somebody in the group will have had some kind of negative interaction, or they might not feel the same as you do. And so it's a natural human inclination to want to bring that person down, to to start criticizing them, to say, you know what, they're not as great as you think they are. So this is an area where we just have to be careful not to praise excessively because you don't know if there's somebody in the group that actually dislikes the person that you're talking about. And if there is someone like that, they're likely to say something derogatory about the subject of praise. 
Now, you're allowed to praise somebody if, you, if the people around you don't know them. But again, it's very hard to know whether or not people know who you're talking about. So again, praise should never be excessive. So that's one of the laws of Lush and Hara, just something to think about as you go into your week or as you continue your week. Okay, another thing I wanted to mention is the Parsha this week. So this week's Parsha, which is Parsha's Balak, actually has an allusion to the topic of Tzni'ut, which we've been talking about. So I couldn't just let it go. In this week's Parsha, we have King Balak. He hires Bilam, who is basically a prophet for the Goyim, for the non-Jews of the world. He's considered to be as great a prophet as Moses was. And one of the rules of prophecy is that a prophet can only say what God allows them to say. He's a vessel for God's message. So Bilaam is actually hired by this King Balak to curse the Jewish people. In ancient times, cursing was actually, because people were very tapped into the spiritual powers of the world, and including the dark powers, right? The black magic, the darker powers of the world, People actually use the power of cursing to bring uh, their enemies' demise. So Balak was very worried about the Jewish people taking over, and he hires this Bilaam to curse the Jewish people. And if you've read the Parsha, you know that as much as Bilaam wants to curse us, he's unable to, because instead of curses coming out of his mouth, only blessings come out. And one of the blessings that he gives is the way that we actually begin the morning davening in the morning. It comes out of the words of Bilam, who is our enemy. And what does he say? He says, Matovu Yaakov. How good are your tents, Yaakov. Mishkinotecha Yisrael. Your dwelling places, O Israel. Now, these are the words that typically a man says when he walks into shul in the morning walking into the Beit Medra, she's walking into the Beit Knesset, and he, he, he says these words from our enemy, from Bilam. Now, how do I know Bilam's our enemy? Because at the very end of the Parsha, Bilam devises a plan to get the Jewish men to sin, to commit harlotry with the Moabite women, okay? And at the end of the Parsha, 24,000 men die from the Jewish people, okay? So going back to this Pasuk that he, he blesses us with, what does he see that makes this blessing come out of his mouth? So Rashi says he's referring, he's looking down from this mountaintop where he wants to curse us and instead blessings come out. And he's looking at the Jewish people's tents and how they've set up their tents in the desert. And what he notices is that nobody's doorway of one tent is, is, is um, located in such a way that they are facing the doorway of their neighbor's tent. And what he's commenting on in this blessing is the amazing modesty, the tzni'ut, the privacy that the Jewish people have in terms of their uh, private lives. That nobody's looking into the tent of the other. And Rashi says there, um, that, that this alludes to their modesty and sensitivity, okay, to privacy and to relationships being private. 
Now, it's interesting that we have this in the Parsha, and then at the very end of the Parsha, we have the extreme opposite. The Jewish people start worshiping the god Baal, an idol, and this leads them to um, illicit relationships with the daughters of Moab, who are told to go out there and dress up in a very enticing manner to entice the Jewish men to want them, to desire them. And the Parsha ends with 24,000 men dying. So here we have at the same time this praise of the Jewish people's modesty. And at the end, of course, this catastrophic act that many of them commit. What is it telling us? I mean, I think what it's saying is, you know, the Torah doesn't hide our human imperfections. Even the greatest among the Jewish people, and of course the Jews in the Torah were on a very high level. But the higher you can rise, the harder you can fall. And, you know, the Torah is telling us that nobody's immune to sexual desires that can be misplaced and in the wrong place. So that, and, and interestingly, the other thing I wanted to mention is this week's Parsha actually has our Pasuk in the Haftorah from Micha, which says, what does God ask of you? What does God want from you? Just three things, right? He wants you to uh, do judgment, right? Do justice in the world. He wants you to do acts of kindness. And he wants to, you to walk, lechet im elokecha, right? To walk with sniut with your God. So what I want to address today a little bit, and I can't help but, but bring it up because I think it's very important, is, you know, what about men? We talk a lot, and in the firm world, in the Jewish world, there's a big emphasis on women's sniut, right? The way a woman should dress, the proper way that she should behave, uh, you know, um, etc. But where do men come into this whole thing? So I think it's really important to, to um, recognize that sniut is a shared responsibility. It's not something, as we said earlier, women do have an extra measure of sniut in terms of our dress. Because as we said, women, my, my son told me in the Gemara, it says women were created for beauty. Okay? We are beautiful. And, and Robertson Heller says the nature of a man is to notice, and the nature of a woman is to want to be noticed. Okay? It's, if you like, it's built into our spiritual DNA, but it's built into our biology as well. Okay? This is the, this is the way it is. You can't deny nature. You know? We can try to deny it, and we can live in a world where gender is so confused and people don't know what they are anymore. But the reason that the Torah gives us the parameters of boundaries of the truth about human nature, generally speaking, is because it's supposed to inform how we're supposed to feel about who we are. Okay, that was a little convoluted, but I want to explain. So when I, when I talk about shared obligation, Men also have an obligation to be tzni'ut. And I want to talk a little bit about this. For a man, it falls under a term called shmirat enayim. He's supposed to guard his eyes. Now, the truth is, is guarding one's eyes is incumbent upon women too, right? In Judaism, we say your eyes are the windows to your soul. 
be careful what you look at. We shouldn't be looking at violent images, obviously pornography, things that are damaging to the soul. Every human being, every uh, person who's seeking um, a life of morality and greater closeness to Hashem is going to watch what they look at. Not everything, just because it's out there, is permissible to look at. So there's an idea of watching what your eyes see. I remember in the Jewish press, they'd always have this little cartoon of a kid watching TV, you know, glued to the television. And on top of his head, it would say, wet cement. Okay? Because the idea was, is that the things we look at make an impression on our souls. They change us. So we don't want to sit in front of violent television uh, movies. We don't want to expose ourselves to things that will hurt our neshama. So this is true for both men and women. But just like women have an extra obligation to cover up their beauty, men have an extra obligation to watch what they're looking at, to watch where their eyes go. Okay? Now, again, it's true of our ears as well. We have to be careful what we listen to. And um, our mouths, right? These are called the gateways into our soul, our eyes, our ears, and our mouth. What goes in and what goes out, especially of our mouth, but specifically with our eyes and ears, we're supposed to control to the degree that we can what we take in and what we allow to go in deeply inside of us. Because we don't want to become desensitized but that's a different uh, topic that we're, we'll talk about so the Torah says the eye sees and the heart desires so the reason that we have Shmirat Enayim specifically when it comes to men in a in a more uh, extreme way is because again the Torah is saying when you see something the immediate response is that your heart desires and then, of course, the thoughts also can kick in because it's all related to each other. In the Shema, we say every single day, don't go after the desires of your heart and your eyes. And it's interesting that there it says the heart first. Right? We said before, the eye sees and the heart desires. Here we're saying, don't go after the desires of your heart and your mind or your eyes. And there it's saying that sometimes a person doesn't even realize that they have certain desires that are sort of sitting inside of them. And when the desires are there, it's going to be more likely that you're going to see those things which are going to activate that desire that was already previously there because you're already kind of going in that direction. So it works in both ways. Now, you know, men who are trying to watch their eyes, who are concerned about their own sni'ut, are battling their yetzerhara all the time. And they need to have strategies to be able to be victorious over it. I looked up on the internet a few different articles that just talk about the differences between men and women. You know, because men are more easily aroused sexually, it says or I'm saying a Jewish man is enjoined to avert his eyes 
from anything that will cause him to think improper thoughts, which of course arouse desire. So here's an article that I found online. Um, it says, while women are not immune, right, from being, from being sexually aroused by sight, by their sight, men struggle with sexual temptation to a much greater degree. Far more men commit adultery than women. In premarital relationships, men are much more likely to seek sex from the partner than women. Simply the sight of an attractive female is sometimes enough to trigger a male's sex drive. Men are far more prone to look at pornography. Okay? Judaism deals with what is, not what we'd like things to be. Sneus, you know, the, 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 the laws of Sneus not only um, go into the nature of how we dress, right? We're allowed to be attractive, but we don't want to be attracting, as we said. Um, but it also includes laws like mixed swimming. You're not supposed to go mixed swimming, right? It's about the mechitza and the shul, the separate davening that we have, so that the men, so to speak, can concentrate on their prayers and not be busy looking at that cute chick in the third row, you know, who I'd like to uh, talk to or get to know, you know, because in shul, you're supposed to be busy with God, so to speak, right? That's where your attention is supposed to be. So we make it easier for both the men and the women, okay, because women are not immune and we have that mechitza there, okay? Another idea, um, the laws of yichud, for those of you who've never heard about this, you know, a man and a woman are not allowed to be alone. If, um, you know, if I leave the house and my husband's home with the cleaning lady or my husband's home with, I don't know, a friend who's sleeping over at our house. And of course, these are very complicated laws, but generally speaking, you have to leave the door open. And the idea is, is that it's guarding against that anything should happen. Now, why would anything happen? Right? Of course, nothing's going to happen. But Judaism says, don't trust yourself till the day you die. Right? In this parsha, on the one hand, we're saying the Jewish people are the most modest people in the world. They're the most private. Bilam, our enemy, is praising us for that. By the end of the parsha, Bilam has enabled us to commit the most biggest atrocity of illicit relationships en masse that the Jewish men just run towards these Moabite women and, you know, it, it's catastrophic. Um, so another idea, there's two words for looking in Hebrew. Okay, there's the word re'iyah from the word ra'ah, to see. And then there's another word, histaklut, which means to gaze. So the Torah basically says about men, it's not a problem to look, to take a look, right? If a beautiful woman's walking by and it's just a natural impulse. And I've sometimes watched this. I've watched like guys when a beautiful woman's walking by just to see how many times does their head turn back and back and back again and again and again and again, right? So there's one look, which is the primary response for even the most religious man, perhaps, you know, wow. But the problem comes in the second and the third look. So halakhically speaking, the first one is called lirot, he looks. 
but histakut means to gaze, okay? And that's where it becomes a problem. Because again, we said that men are more easily aroused and gazing is already a secondary response. It's already putting yourself in a position where, again, for the protection of women, you're probably going to be um, objectifying this woman, making her into an ezechaticha. And according to the Torah, that's not allowed because women are supposed to be um, seen as human and as more than human, right? Women are supposed to be on a pedestal in Judaism. And for a man to objectify her is considered a terrible thing. So it's a, it's a shared obligation. You know, I remember when I was becoming religious and, and a lot of women, even in the religious world, have this question. You know, it's a man's problem. Why do we have to cover ourselves up because they've got issues, right? This is not a Jewish way of looking at it. It's our problem, right? We want to help you not objectify us, but it's also good for us because we don't want to be objectified and externalized as much as we like to be noticed for our beauty. And we have a certain taiva as women to show ourselves that way. Look at how beautiful I am. We also are trying to guard our internality for our own sake by saying I'm much more than my blonde hair and my great figure and, you know, my great uh, walk or whatever it is, I'm much more than that. And we all know people who are shallow and superficial that it can happen to very beautiful women so easily, right? I know one Revitson said it was a blessing to her that she wasn't beautiful. In fact, she wasn't beautiful at all. And she said it's because of that that she developed her mind to, to a degree that she probably never would have had she been more beautiful. Now, again, this is, I'm giving extremes, but the idea is to try and teach something here. Okay, so men need strategies to be able to do the Shmiras Enayim. I'll just give you some personal stories. My own sons, I remember once, I don't know when it happened or what age it was, but I remember being in the mall with them, just another trip to the mall, taking them to get what they needed. And all of a sudden, I don't know if I was with one or two of them, they had their glasses off. And I was like, what are you doing? Why are you, what are you walking around bumping into the walls for? Why are you not wearing your glasses? That was probably summertime, you know, in Yorkdale or wherever. And they were protecting themselves. They were protecting their eyes. You know, they were walking past Victoria's secret, right? They don't want to know the secret, okay? They were bombarded by people walking around in less clothing than more. And so these are sincere men who say, I don't want to become desensitized to women. I don't want to objectify women. I don't want to see them as things or go against the Torah and start having all kinds of desires and illicit thoughts. I'm taking off my glasses. My husband reminded me of a story that we once had a woman for Shabbos dinner, a woman with her two kids, and she was a beautiful woman, and she was wearing a very low-cut shirt. 
And Baruch Hashem, you know, my sons grew up in, in, in small communities. They were very comfortable with all types of people, but they were getting older. And we could tell at the table that they were having trouble engaging in conversation with her. You know, it was a little bit distracting. And anyway, when we got up to go and wash, one of my sons said to me, you know, it's really hard for me because I want to be able to talk to her and, and, you know, enjoy her company as they always did with anybody who came, but it's a little bit distracting. So I actually brought down a little shawl for her and I asked her privately if she wouldn't mind wearing it, you know. Anyway, she gladly put it on. And the interesting thing was as soon as she was covered, you know, my boys were their charming, uh, you know, friendly selves, which is the way we've trained them to be. So, so again, men have to have strategies. My husband was just telling me he was listening to a shear by a, a rabbi in Brooklyn. And he was telling the men, when you go out to the Catskills in the summer, you know, to your bungalow colonies on Fridays, because typically the men go up and join their, their wives and children in these bungalow colonies, right, for Shabbat. So he was saying, don't take the Brooklyn Bridge, but go through Staten Island. And why was he telling them this little piece of, you know, geographic advice? Because of Shmiris Anayim. He was saying, you know what, if you go over the Brooklyn Bridge now when it's 80 degrees and you're stuck there, you are going to see more sights, you know, than you've seen in your lifetime. If, if you're from Borough Park or flat, whatever, right? So take the Staten Island because there's no bridges. You're not going to get stuck watching and looking, which is going to be very difficult at all kinds of women who are very uh, provocatively undressed or whatever in broad daylight. So interestingly, I just want to bring that out there because I think it's really important to realize, again, that it's a shared obligation. And it's not, it's not only in areas of dress. I don't know about you, but I remember walking through Maya Sharam, probably dressed very inappropriately. <clears throat> and men would walk by and literally like throw themselves against the wall, you know, with their eyes against the wall until we passed, right? I don't know if that ever happened to you. But, you know, there's two ways to understand that. So as a secular person, it's like, that is so insulting, you know? Can't they look at me? What do they think I am? A second-class citizen? What's wrong with them? You know, they don't respect women. But then as you begin to understand this idea of Shmira Sainayim and the noble thing that they're actually doing to keep women on that pedestal and not, God forbid, objectify us or think of us in, the, in a very low way, they're actually doing that to say, no, it's because I respect you. It's because I don't want to diminish you. Now, again, this is an extreme way of behaving. And yet, going back to the middle path, are men allowed to talk to women? Is there anything wrong with that? Somebody who is somebody else's husband. Are you allowed to say hello? The Gemara actually says that you are, it's considered polite and proper. So let's say, say to your friend, your girlfriend, how's your husband? How's he doing? And the same way back, how's your wife? Is she well? Is she doing okay? We're supposed to be normal. That's what I'm trying to say. And yet, in Pirkei Avos, 
in the Mishnah, it says, let your house be open wide, treat the poor as members of your household. So it's saying, open up your house wide, let everybody come in who need help, who need your chesed, men and women alike. But then it warns the men, do not converse excessively with a woman. They said this even about your own wife, okay? So surely it applies to another person's wife. Don't even talk too much to your own wife. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, which I don't want to go into, but especially not, you know, somebody else's wife. So again, don't talk excessively. It doesn't say don't talk to them, don't greet them, don't say hi, how are you? Don't say what's new. But don't find yourself being caught in a conversation with somebody else's husband that's just going on and on, that's getting too intense, or that you just don't feel comfortable with. Because the Torah is saying it's not proper, it's not sni'ut, it's not guarding one's internality. You know, I, I was a Rebbitzin of, a, of, a, of many communities over the years. And of course, some communities were people who were more um, learned in these areas and some people who were less. I remember my first position. I don't want to say where, where, but it was quite horrifying for me because I was coming from Israel and I was extremely religious, like Balchuva flip out. And at the end of the prayer service, the mechitza was very low in the shul, but it was halachically acceptable. At the end of shul, all the men and women would kiss each other over the mechitza. Okay, I was afraid to sit a little too close because I was worried they were going to kiss the Rebbitzin too. But one of the, you know, things that I pointed out once to, uh, and this, this shul really, largely people were not, at all religious, even though they belong to an orthodox, observant, let me say observant, even though they belong to an orthodox shul. Now, another one that was a step up where people were uh, observant, the kissing and the hugging between husbands and wives was going on outside of shul, right, after shul. So something that I brought up to them, and I just think it's something interesting to think about, is I would say, you know, you don't know what's going on in the married life of that woman that you're kissing or hugging that other man's wife, you don't know if their relationship is really rocky and they're actually not happy together. And every time she sees you with your wife or whatever, or she thinks about you, or you come and give her a hug and a kiss to you, it's nothing. It's just social convention. It's what people do in that, you know, in that social group. But for her, for somebody who's vulnerable, for somebody who's thinking, gee whiz, I wish my husband could be more like him. Oh, he's so sensitive. Look at how he helps his wife. Look at what he does. I wish my husband could be like that. And she's right now in a very vulnerable position in her life. That hug or that kiss that means nothing to you can be her lying in bed thinking of you and wishing that her husband was you. And this can work both ways, of course, right? It can work also with a man who's in a terrible marriage. And he, you know, this beautiful woman in shul who's married to his best friend gives him a lot of attention. And let's face it, women, we, we can find other people's husbands much more interesting and stimulating than our own, right? We can find them more attractive, 
because as it says in the Torah, right? Uh, stolen waters are sweeter. That which we don't have, that which doesn't belong to us is somehow, you know, more exciting than same old, same old husband, right? So all of these different laws, again, of that, that are under the umbrella of Tzniyut, um, are there to protect us, are there to create boundaries. And they're for both men and women equally. As we said in other classes, the reason why women are enjoined with the mitzvah in terms of our behavior and our dress of a little bit extra is because we have to be real about what we do for men, men who are still sensitized. You know, we live in a world of desensitization um, where, you know, in Judaism, even a touch means something, right? Of course, I'm sure many of you are familiar that we also have the laws of Shomer Nagia, right? Not being able to touch until, you know, there are boys and girls who will never touch anybody until their wedding night, anybody from the opposite sex. So, you know, people say, how can they do that? How are they going to know how to do it? How are they going to know it's the right one if they never try? Whatever. We live in a crazy world. But the idea is, can you imagine the explosiveness of touching for the first time on the hand for somebody who never did that? We don't realize the power of touch because we live in a society that doesn't appreciate how powerful it is. And if anything... Because we're so inundated with all of the sexuality and the sexual revolution and everything that's happened since then, including the mess of people not knowing even what gender they want to be today, the boundaries have been so exploded. There's no such thing as privacy. There's no such thing as being quiet about that area of life, right? That people have become extremely confused. And so, for men and women, I just want to point out that Sneat is a shared obligation. It's there to protect both of us. And because men are naturally, generally more inclined to be sexually aroused just by sight alone, they also have a very difficult job, as hard as it is for us to get dressed in the morning, for those of us who struggle with Sneat. Can you imagine how hard it is for a man who's not in his little, you know, uh, you know, he's not on Bathurst, you know, between Viewmount and Lawrence, but he actually has to venture out into the world where he might see all kinds of things. Can you imagine how difficult that is driving down, you know, Miami Beach when it's 80 degrees out and trying to be careful with your eyes? It's tough. But a sincere Jewish man takes it seriously. Remember Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States? Do you remember the uproar when he said that when I go for lunch with other women, I always take my wife? Because he understood this. I'm not putting myself in a position where I'm out for lunch with other women without my wife because I know myself. I'm sensitized. I might find one of them attractive, you know? They might make me feel like a hundred million bucks, which my wife doesn't do on a constant basis, right? So, 
you know, a lot of people said, oh, this is terrible. This is horrible. He's terrible. He only goes with his wife. What kind of craziness is this, right? And of course, Jewish people understood it completely. He's a religious Christian. He gets his values and his morals from us. He understands. Don't trust yourself till the day you die. Somebody once said, if more university professors would keep their doors open and follow the laws of Yichud, there would be a lot less um, illicit relationships between professors and their students. I even had a friend once, a, a non-Jewish woman who I worked with, who told me that a doctor literally attacked her sexually in an appointment. Okay, but can you imagine if, and you know, the Me Too movement and all this, can you imagine if the world adopted the laws of Yehud that said, don't trust yourself, leave the door open so that you know that at any time somebody could come in, at any time somebody could push that door open. It's going to be a guard. It's going to help you not to overstep boundaries. So the Torah understands human beings. God created us. God knows his creations. And as much as, you know, we can reach the heights, matovu ohalecha, look at your people, Israel. Look how modest they are. Look how private they are. Nobody wants to look into any other person's tent. Everybody wants to recognize that the family is a place of privacy and a precious place, a place that's a, a, a place of glory because it's internal, it's within. Um, and yet by the end of the Parsha, 24,000 men have gone off with these beautiful, sexy Midianite Moabite women and fallen to the abbess. Okay, but again, as Jews, we just pick ourselves up and try again because that's the nature of the Jewish people. And that's the nature of our Torah. It doesn't hide our blemishes. It doesn't, um, it recognizes how difficult it is to be human and how easy it is to fall. And that's why all of the mitzvot are there to be able to, right? The don't do's are there to be able to create boundaries, to protect us, to make us greater. And the positive mitzvot, the Asse mitzvot, the do this kind of mitzvot are there, of course, to expand ourselves, to make ourselves greater in areas of chesed, in areas where we have to go out and do something. But equally important are those mitzvot that say, don't do, restrain yourself, hold yourself back. Yes, you'd like to dress this way. You'd like to talk to that guy for another three hours because he's so interesting. And, and the talk is so easy and you agree on everything. You don't agree on anything with your husband, with him, you know, you agree on everything. What a great husband he would make, right? You know, but, you know, why is it like that? Because we have Yetzir Haras and we, we're put into tests. And the Torah and Pirkei Avos, et cetera, are saying, be careful. You know, you think you've got this in the bag, but you really don't. At any time, you know, you could slip into something else. So one other thing I just uh, thought about, you know, is, is there any, is there such a thing as platonic relationships? I'm putting it out there to you. I'd love to hear your feedback. You know, I remember my sister had a guy who was a really good friend all through high school and even elementary. 
And she would, I would always say to her, he, he's so frustrated. He likes you so much. And, you know, all you let him do is, you know, you know, one of those guys who likes to brush your hair and braid it, you know, like he's headed for whatever being like, probably in this day and age, he's probably not going to be straight, but you know, there's those guys who are like girlfriends. Okay. They're just like friends and they're fun. And you talk to them and you tell them your problems. But I used to say, even then as a sister who was her older sister, like, I don't know. He likes you. And she would say, no, he doesn't. He doesn't like me. We're just friends. We're just friends. No, it's not about that. You don't understand. And I would say, I don't know. I think the poor guy, I mean, you know, you're telling, you're going out with other guys and telling him about, you know, like it must be so painful. So, okay. I looked it up. Platonic relationships. Is there such a thing? Oh, I just wanted to say one other thing. When I was at University of Toronto, I was in a, a musical and the name of the musical and this was in the 80s was called just good friends okay and the entire musical was exploring this idea of can men and women really have platonic relationships and of course you know even in the 80s they were saying no the the, the whole gist of this musical and all the songs that were in it and scenes were all about the agony of either the male or the female having these platonic relationships and being frustrated. So here's what it says about platonic relationships. One second. Okay, what is a platonic relationship and do they really exist? So here I'm talking about men specifically. Men on the other hand may find themselves struggling with keeping things platonic. This is because men are typically attracted to women by their looks first. Their sexual desire for a woman is what encourages him to learn as much as he can about her, which leads him to fall in love with her eventually. Men are inherently drawn to women that will make good mates. So to be friends with a woman may be all the more difficult for a man. Attraction is everything. The moment one friend becomes attracted to the other friend, no matter which friend feels the attraction first, that's when things stop being platonic. Okay, and it says basically that in platonic relationships, there's usually some kind of sexual attraction that has to be repressed in order for it to continue to be platonic. Somebody has to be working to repress that in order to be able to go continue with that. Okay, so um, I've opened up a lot of cans of worms here, I'm sure, in your minds. I'd love to unmute you guys and just hear some comments, feedback. Um, hold on one second. So I've allowed you to unmute yourself. Does anybody um, have anything to say? Is there such a thing as platonic relationships? I know I already said my answer, but, you know, maybe you have something to share. Yes, no, I need Risa on this uh, chat. Marlene, can you unmute yourself? Let me see. Yes, so I, can I go back two steps to the um, sneeze and the dressing? And, and yeah. is there a difference between what the... Um, you know, letter of the law versus, I see the most beautiful 
from women with hair down to their, you know, there is a sex appeal going regardless of, of intention or not. The yes. dress, the everything. So I think that, that to explain the difference of what is, you know, mandated versus what is understood as the letter yeah. of the... Yeah, okay, great question. You know what I'm Mar talking about? Great or not? question, Marlene, great question. And it's a question that, you know, people who are in the religious world and have grown up in it, they have the same question, okay? So again, like every mitzvah, and of course, some mitzvahs, this is more apparent than others. There's the letter of the law, as Marlene, you know, related to, and there's the spirit of the law, the spirit of the law right? In other words, you can follow the rules. You can say, well, I'm covering my hair. Well, I'm wearing a skirt. I have a top on and it's higher and it even covers my elbow. Like that's the more stricter approach, right? But there's nothing about you that looks uh, like you're not trying to attract, right? So perhaps you're following this, the letter of the law in terms of these parts of your body should be covered, but you're totally missing the spirit of the law. And we know what the spirit of the law is because we've talked about it, covering your ego, developing internality. In this class, we're talking about helping men not objectify us, not have to keep looking four, five, six times, which they might at such a religious woman who's covered, but is still very much desiring to show herself off, which we said, the Torah says, that's the natural way a woman is. We want to show off our beauty. We feel good when somebody notices us, when somebody gives us a look, right? You might not like it, you know, if you were a kid and walking by and, you know, some guy whistles at you as he's walking, as he's driving by. On the one hand, it's kind of like, um, it makes you feel maybe, it, you know, you can have two, two reactions to that. You know, ugh, go away, you know, get lost. You're such a low light, right? But then you could have a certain exhilaration of, ah, he notices my beauty, you know? I'm so beautiful. I'm, I'm something worth looking at. I'm something worth listening at, slowing down for, taking a fourth look at, right? So, you know, women are also conflicted in this way, right? We know what we're supposed to be doing, but we forget what the whole point of it is, right? So the shaitals get longer. They get more and more real looking. They cost exorbitant amount of money right? But you're going to pay that money because you want to look good. Now, again, do you have to spend that much money to look good? You know, do you have to spend that much money to make your shaitel the kind of shaitel that nobody in a million years will ever know that you're not wearing your own hair? Is that the point of the laws? Now, there are many rabbis that say women should only wear tichels, that a Jewish woman um, should only wear scarves because this way, right, a man immediately knows that's a sign that they're married, not going to start picking you up, 
right? Because you're wearing that blonde bombshell shade. So that looks so real that, and looking so incredibly attracting, um, you know, but the tickle lets them know, right? And gives you another safeguard. On the other hand, there are many, many rabbis that say no, only a shade. Well, do you know that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Paskin, that you should not wear a tichel. You should wear a shaitel. Why? Different reasons. So one is that a shaitel actually covers your hair better, right? The tichel is more likely can, can slip back. But even the idea that a woman might forget that she's wearing a tichel and just like naturally pull it off. Let's say she's hot or whatever. But you're not as likely to do that with this thing that's clipped onto your head. Okay? Now, I like to say as beautiful as a shaitel looks to people out there, the woman who's wearing one knows that she's wearing one, right? She knows that she's wearing this, so to speak, crown on her head. What we cover our hair with, again, you'll have rabbis that say a shaitel is the only way to go because it covers your hair completely and properly. Other rabbis that will say, what's with this, this, this confusion? You don't even know that you're married. Why are you covering your hair, as many secular would say, with other people's hair that's nicer than yours, right? You don't even have nice hair. And now you've got this beautiful bombshell shape. Like, what is going on, right? You're not supposed to look so beautiful. You were better off before, right? Before you got married, you know? You should have been wearing this before you got married. Then, you know, you would have gotten married quicker, Right? What are you wearing it now for so that every guy in shul can notice you? You know, and there's even this idea I once heard when I was, you know, myself, uh, you know, involved in all the questions that go along with this subject. And it is a very murky subject. You know, there was an idea that there was a woman in Maya Sharm. I don't know if she's true or this is a fictitious character, but there was a woman in Maya Sharm who, like, when she was outside the house, she was wearing one of those little black kerchiefs, you know, looking very unglamorous. But that inside the house, when she was with her husband, she had this blonde bombshell shaitel that she would only wear in the house. I had a friend, too, who was a Rebbitson, of my, uh, Rebbitson friend of mine. And I guess I was shopping with her. And there was a dress. And it was a little bit too short. And maybe it was a little bit too low. And maybe it was a little bit too, you know, short in the sleeves. But let's say I loved it, right? I loved it. I loved the way I looked at it. She said, you know what? You can have clothes that are just for inside the house. You could have clothing that's just, you know. Now, again, you know, maybe it's a mixed message for your kids. But let's say your kids are growing up. Let's say your kids have gone to yeshiva. They're out of the house. You want to, you, you know, go wild inside the house? Go for it, Right? Just be careful you don't forget and go out on the porch and say hi to the neighbors, right? But, you know, the idea, and then, you know, like Dina Schoonmaker brings up, like, you know, in certain neighborhoods, there's certain standards of the way you're supposed to dress. But your husband doesn't like that standard. And there's another standard that's considered permissible, but it might be a little bit more lenient, than the standard, you know, you're living in Maya Sharam, but you know, you're not Maya Sharam. So again, she says, you know, and even if other people might tisk tisk the way that you're dressing, 
if it's coming from, let's say, a proper place and your husband's saying, I don't like, you don't have to be that covered. Why are you covering yourself like that? Why are you wearing three layers in a garbage bag? You don't have to do that, you know? So you're allowed to say, I want to please my husband. And even though I love dressing like the Taliban, it, I, I love it. You know, I cover my face if I could. You know, I'm not doing that because my husband doesn't like that. He doesn't find me pleasing, right? Like I, I was shopping with one of my daughters-in-law once and I said, here, why, oh, that dress looks great on you. I love it. And I have to say, I was quite amazed by her and I don't think I'm on that level. She said, well, I like it too, but you know what? My husband, meaning your son, hates flowers. He just hates those flower dresses. He's told me, I hate those flowers. Don't ever wear one of those flowers. And she said, so why should I get it? Like, he doesn't like it. And like, I was the eight to her. I was going, who cares about him? So what? You like it. What about you? You're the one having the babies. Like, you have to be happy. And you know what? It wasn't even a question in her mind. It was like, yeah, but I want to, she said to me, but I want him to like what he sees when he looks at me. I want him to be attracted to me. Women don't deceive themselves. Even religious women have to know that even a husband who's married for years in a wonderful relationship, you know, men are men. And men, some men have extra libido, right? Just like some people, their homer is, they're born with an angry temperament and they have to spend their whole life working on their anger. Or another person's born very stingy and they have to spend their whole life trying to be more generous and give that tenth to tzedakah. There are men whose tests, and women perhaps less so, their test is they like other people's wives. They like looking at them. They like, you know, oh, let me tell you another story that happened that I meant to share with you. I was walking on Shabbos a few weeks ago, you know, and a friend of mine was walking towards me with her husband. And I know both of them. We've been to their homes for Shabbos. They've been to our house. Our kids were friends when, when they were younger. And here's an example of someone who understands Sni'ut. As I'm walking by and just saying a hello, she mouths to me so that her husband can't hear. You look beautiful. Now, why did she say that quietly? Why didn't she say it out loud? Because of this sensitivity of sneut. Why should she say it out loud so that her husband also look at me as she's saying, you look beautiful, and say to himself, hmm, she does look pretty good, right? You know what? She looks better than you look. Okay, why don't you lose a few pounds? You know, whatever it is, right? Or, you know, you look beautiful. Like, why should he be like turning towards me, having the uh, thoughts in his mind? Hmm, you know, well, I don't know. Does she look beautiful? Is she more beautiful than my wife? Nah, I don't think she's so beautiful. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. You know, so again, I was like, because I'm teaching this topic too, so my antenna are up, right? I said, wow. And I even said to her, I, I was speaking to her after, I said, that was incredible how you, 
And she said, well, Devorah, you know, we both went to this school called Eyot, Robinson Weinberg's place. She said, we learned this stuff back then. And I said, well, I see you remembered it. I don't know about me, you know, but, but the point is, again, that sensitivity, right? When a woman talks about her girlfriend to her husband and says, oh, she's so beautiful. Oh my God, you should have seen how she looked at the wedding. She was, did you see her? She was gorgeous. Did you see? Oh my, oh, she's the most beautiful woman I know. She is the, like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, do you know that halakhically a man, you're not allowed to have relations with your husband if he's thinking about somebody else, just thoughts, or if you're thinking about somebody else. Now, it's pretty hard to say, uh, honey, we've got to stop right here because I've got, you know, Mike on my brain right now, or I've got your beautiful friend, Susie, who you talk about ad nauseum, about how gorgeous she is all the time and show me pictures of her, you know, like, sorry, <laughs> you know, um, halakhically, you're not allowed to have relations if your mind is on somebody else. Because that potential child that could come from that union you know, in a spiritual sense, might not be as pure as, as, you know, with a, you know, born with as pure thoughts as was possible. But again, why do we have these laws? Because we're human, because God understands that even a man with a huge wall around him, you know, that lives in a completely Hasidic community that will never see anything he's not supposed to be, see, Maybe he was born with extra libido, right? And it doesn't matter who he sees. That's where his mind goes. And that's his test, his constant challenge. A horrible one, right? A horrible challenge. You know, there's even an idea that when a, a religious man thinks about committing adultery, he doesn't think about it with a non-religious, non-Jewish woman. He finds the religious woman who's sitting, you know, at the table over from him at the Sheva Brachas or at the Bar Mitzvah, much more alluring because she's more similar to him. They know each other's life. They know, you know, their lifestyle. That's much more of a temptation than somebody else who's much further from him, you know, some shiksa or whatever. Somebody that, you know, okay, well, it won't matter if I, if I go with her. So it's just very interesting. It's a huge topic. I didn't know I was going to spend the whole class on it. Um, and I hope um, that uh, not everything I said, I mean, if you have trouble with anything I said, I'm open to discussion. But Marlene, thanks again. I think this is the point that I'm making. And I think in the religious world, a lot of people struggle with this. People who were born from people who see their own daughters with, you know, blonde shade goes down to their tuchas. I better turn this recording off. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies, for listening. Hope you enjoyed this class. To sponsor a future class or for a complimentary and completely confidential coaching session with me, as I support you in reaching your goals and actualizing your true potential, Please email me at DeborahVale at Yahoo.ca. That's Deborah, D 
D-E-V-O-R-A-H, Vail, V-A-L-E, at yahoo.ca.